codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 311 of Priority One Podcast, your weekly report on all things Star Trek. Recorded live via Facebook on Thursday, March 30th, 2017, and available for download or streaming on Monday, April 3rd at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Tony. And as always, in the recording booth is our audio engineer, Quinters. Greetings, everyone. So, Tony, why don't you tell us what we have coming up this week? Uh, this week we are honored to have with us two extremely talented artists from Star Trek Online, lead ship and UI designer and artist Thomas the Cryptic Cat Maroney, and Emmy Award winning VFX design and makeup artist, and of course Star Trek master Doug Drexler, for a fantastic discussion about Star Trek history, ship design, and the future of Star Trek. Brace yourselves, Captains, this is going to be a long show, but worth every minute. But before we get to that, we're going to catch you up on all the news. We're trekking out the return of fan films, some Star Trek-themed ransomware, and a roundup of the latest about Discovery. Then in Star Trek Online, a new season's been announced for PC with some long-awaited changes to PvP combat. And of course, as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. So let's keep the conversation going by reaching out to us via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. You can also catch us on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can also send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Well, kids, it's that time of the show where I like to give a quick shout out to our Patreon supporters. With a pledge from as little as a dollar a month, it's all of you guys who keep the show going. Of course, by pledging more, you can also earn yourself a few extra perks. At the $10 level, you'll get access to our exclusive behind-the-scenes audio RSS feed, where you can get all of our live shows and extra content delivered straight to your favorite podcast catcher. This week, we've posted the whole uncut interview with Doug Drexler and Thomas Maroney, swearing and other assorted shenanigans included, a full five days before this episode was even published. To find out more and add your support, please head over to patreon.com forward slash priority one. And before we start the show, one last announcement. We're always looking for members of the Priority One listener community to join the team and help contribute to our little neck of the Alpha Quadrant. For instance, we'd love to showcase your writing if you've got something geeky to share. Or if you're familiar with audio editing and programs like Adobe Audition or Audacity, Winters, Steve, and Brandon can use an extra hand from week to week. If you're interested in joining the team, send an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Now let's check out the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. It's been a long while since we've talked about fan films on the show, but now that the guidelines have been established and most of the dust has settled, creatives from all around the world are proving that 15 minutes doesn't have to be a crippling limitation to storytelling. Several groups have begun producing shorts, and the one that caught our attention was Star Trek First Frontier, which tells the story of Robert April, the first captain of the Starship Enterprise, 
the Constitution class. The two-minute trailer is very impressive, and even more so is that they're actually using an 11-foot model of the Enterprise for their visual effects. Now, we have links in the show notes, of course, if you'd like to check it out, including a link to a site called fanfilmfactor.com, which keeps you up to speed with all the Star Trek fan films in production. It's, this is no joke. This is pretty, pretty good. And the trailer itself is also very impressive. And, it, you know, what I love about these is that it makes you want to learn about the story, right? You're like, oh, man, what was April like as captain of the Enterprise, the first Constitution class? It looks pretty. I mean, the production quality looks pretty good. It's it's very impressive. Yeah, just by looking at the uh, the, the short little clip they've got there. So, well, that brings us to our first community question for this week. Are you ready to welcome back Star Trek fan films? Which fan films have been produced since the guidelines that have really piqued your interest? Speaking of fan films of a sort, there's a low-budget Star Trek movie that some of you probably don't know exists. It features lots of the original cast playing their iconic roles. Okay, maybe it's not a movie per se, but someone has pieced together all the cutscenes from the Starfleet and Klingon Academy video games from 1997. It's almost two hours long and kind of painful to watch in places, but it does offer some additional lore to films like Undiscovered Country. So, Tony, I was about to ask you, did you own and play that game? Uh, what I just said here a second ago was that I owned and played that game. Yes, I did. I did indeed. And it's there. It's it is it is funny. I read uh, the the Wired article that we've got here in the notes, and the reviewer is kind of spot on. In the moments where like the original cast comes in, it's really it the it, it really sort of feels like a Star Trek episode, right? You know that. They, they, the old uh, the, the old guard fell into their roles and got and got into the character and you really felt like you know they're they're doing their bit at the academy and then you got the all the extras all the all the people that were the quote stars of the video game because it was a video game right they weren't gonna pay the the uh, the lead actors to be the lead roles because that would have gotten really expensive and it just kind of went down it, it seemed like at night one of those 1990s infomercials you know like uh, like uh, like like one of those uh, like uh, work workplace training videos like you know i had some questions about the trash compactor well you should know that you probably be shouldn't you should not operate it without safety goggles and the appropriate apron let me show you about the apron and the goggles and they go over and get the apron and the goggles i mean it was just it, it was that kind of level of of, of uh, yeah it it, it it but it is it is a coherent story um, they said that when they tried to mush the Klingon version and the Starfleet version together, it got a little mixed up. But the Starfleet Academy is a coherent story, and it, um, you know, it was it was a good game for the '90s. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it took me down memory lane. I watched bits and pieces of it. The reveal is kind of cute. Kirk does a Kirk thing, and it's just it's just it it's it's like okay, the people that wrote this knew they had William Shatner as Kirk, and they're like, we got to take advantage, so they did, and it, it kind of it. it had a poetic sort of ending like that way. That way. Recommend a, a quick watch. Well, you might want to keep vigilant of some new ransomware that's hit the web. A new malicious program called Kirk can automatically encrypt all of the files on your computer. A ransom message will then appear on your screen with instructions on how to pay the hackers. In order to decrypt your files, you'll need to pay them to send you a decryption program called Spock. Now, this may all sound cheeky, but this is a legit virus that can cause havoc on your machine. Without the decryption, it is highly unlikely that you will ever have access to your files again. 
Now, this particular ransomware hasn't been spotted in the wild, but there are many others like it, and I have seen them firsthand. So stay alert. Read before you click on anything, and don't run programs that you don't absolutely trust, even ones called Kirk. Things have been quiet as of late regarding Star Trek Discovery. Filming is definitely underway, and the cast has already come together to celebrate a birthday. James Frain, the actor playing Sarek, had a birthday and the crew went out for some food. Chris Obi, who plays Tukuvma, shared a group shot on his personal Instagram account. But rumors and gossip are still rampant, with fan theories surfacing left and right. Some think the Shinzo becomes the Discovery, for instance. And most recently, Chris Obi tweeted a response about being called the King of Klingons. Could this be a hashtag Trek nugget of information that they're spoiling? Perhaps they're alluding to him being Chancellor of the Empire? Twitter remains busy with behind-the-scenes nuggets, though, and TrekMovie.com posted a rundown of the latest from the cast and crew. Now, my biggest takeaway is that Nick Meyer is, in fact, on set in Toronto giving script notes, and Stella, Meyer's dog, seems to have a companion, a Gorn by the name of Jason. Jason Gorn. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's kind of like 1-8th Gates on Gates McFadden's Twitter account. Hashtag Jason Gorn follows the antics of a tiny little Gorn figurine throughout the set. Links to the Twitter roundup on trekmovie.com will, of course, be in the show notes. Tony, how do you feel about Nick Meyer like, actually giving show notes? Script notes. Oh, it's great. Just bring, bring it on. Bring it on. I hope, it's thing, I, hope it's, uh, I hope he keeps doing it. I hope we get more specific things like, you know... The Klingon Chancellor, when he dies, you know, needs to, you know, uh, uh, gurgle up more blood. You know, I mean, we need we need some very specific things like that, so we can we can uh, start seeing if my predictions are coming true. Yeah, like when Jason when Jason Isaacs buys it in, in episode thirteen, we need to, we need to make sure that, that those that those notes make it to uh, to the internet here. Now let's find out what happened this week in Star Trek Online. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. Well, Captains, welcome again to Star Trek Online News. This week, we're really pleased to have an interview with two design powerhouses, Thomas Maroney from Star Trek Online and the inimitable Star Trek designer, Doug Drexler. But first, there are a couple of quick stories we want to make sure you're aware of. It wouldn't be Priority One without an announcement of new ships. This week's it was announced that there is a new bundle of Tier 6 Allied Escort ships available in the Sea Store. We'll probably look at them in more depth in a future episode of Priority One, but for now, let's just say that these are Kitty Cat ships. The Federation one is Kaishun. Meow. I like that. Yeah. Meow. The KDF one is Ferocin. Nah, a little more angry. There you go. <laughs> and there's also. More angry kitty. Yeah, more angry kitty. And there's also a Romulan one. Meow. No, there's no Romulan cats, so. No, it's just a Romulan ship. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, uh, I know at least one of the team here, and probably it's going to be Cookie, who will be thrilled. Also in PC News, Season 13 Escalation has been announced. The update will include a new featured episode, as per usual. But the big change is the addition of War Games. The press release says, quote, The newest update marks the debut of a brand new War Games system which pits teams of players against each other in competitive player-versus-environment scenarios, end quote. In other words, players fight against the game environment. That's what PvE is. But 
are competing in a sort of league table with other teams of players. That's the PvP, player versus player. This update will also include improved player matching and the space balance changes we discussed last week. Season 13, Escalation, is due to be released on PC on April 25th. Well, hey, we could talk about that for just a second because this has been a long time coming. I remember Al has always said that he wants to do PvP revamp, but he wants it to be more of a PvE kind of a challenge. My question is, can you target other players? I think no. The way that I read it, that's no. And I would also like to say, I totally called it on the player matching. I would just like to say... Oh, they're going to be like more level rank it, like a, like I said something about like power potential. They're going to call it something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's called power potential, I think. And the chances are we'll never really know what's going on under the hood to make that happen. That's a very, very complicated kind of thing, and it's a real big deal, actually. Like, if you're on the Xbox, for instance, um, I know we're talking about PC here, but I know on the Xbox One, if you are an Xbox Live subscriber, you get player matching. If you're an Xbox Live Gold, you actually get what they call improved player matching. So they have a fancier thing that is supposed to match you better with people of your level. So, you know, player matching is a really big deal, especially when you get into a huge MMO game like this. It should theoretically improve your experience as a as a PvE player and as a PvP player. Yeah, I'll be curious to know if they ever actually talk much about what goes into that magic mix of defining the power potential. You know, Star Trek, uh, Starfleet Command 1, 2, and 3, and this game I've often referred to as Starfleet Command 4, they had uh, basis points. Uh, it was something like basis points or something like that. And it actually, it every ship had a score based on the weapons and the hull and the shields. And that those weapons were, or that that score was used to determine if you had three birds of prey come in against one cruiser. You know, it, it would the, the the computer would match according to that. I imagine it's going to be a more complicated version of that. But I, I, even if they don't release it, people are going to try to figure it out. I I hope they don't. I hope they don't tell too much about what's going on under the hood because I I, I think that um, in some cases that can really cripple their ability to kind of. Uh, maneuver in the game space, as it were, that you know, not tell, not revealing too much about how they're doing player matching allows them to tweak that and gives them a bit more flexibility. And and I I hope that they can do that because I think that kind of thing is very much more an art than a science. It's very much more what feels right and what what the players end up getting at the end, rather than a formula of science. There's probably a lot of things that go into it and depending on the situation could be different. I, I don't I almost don't want to know. Yeah, I like your flexibility point, but I also uh, want to avoid I'd like the, for them to avoid the uh, the ability for people to game that system. It's like weight classes in wrestling, you know, the night before you don't eat anything and you you know and you 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 work you sweat off a bunch of pounds before weigh in and that kind of stuff. It 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 would take away the game the meta gaming of of trying to stay in a certain class. I'll tell you what has piqued my interest regarding this announcement. Maybe it's just me, but it seems a little bit disappointing for a season release. There's very little content in this. Well, we don't want to get too much into a discussion today because we haven't had that many details yet. We know we have a big show. Uh, We'll get into it in more depth in a future episode of Priority One Podcast uh, when we've got a little bit more detail on what's coming up. And keeping with the new season theme... Xbox One and PlayStation 4 players can look forward to the launch of Season 12 Reckoning on April 18th. 
console players can expect a new story mission, reputation system, research and development school, the Zenkethi battle zone, and two new space queues. Season 12 also marks the first appearance in STO of Star Trek veteran actor Tony Todd as General Rodek. Once again, Season 12 Reckoning launches on consoles on the 18th of April. If you fancy trying your hand at a bit of Star Trek Online fanfiction, you may want to check out the First Contact Day writing contest. They're looking for 1,500-word short stories about, quote, the first time your captain encountered a being from another world, end quote. First place is the exclusive title of Hollow Novelist, a Phoenix Admiralty card, and five Phoenix prize packs. For details and how to submit, we'll leave a link in our show notes at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO311. The First Contact Day writing contest is open now for submissions and closes on April 14th. Captains, you know that we here are big fans of Star Trek Online. Obviously, since we've been covering it for over 311 episodes. In a recent episode of the Engaged podcast, the official Star Trek podcast, Star Trek Online was given a review. Now, you can go ahead and visit StarTrek.com and listen to the episode yourself. But we wanted to address it a little bit because we feel that Star Trek Online was given a bit of an unfair review. For starters, it seems that the host and guest hosts who were reviewing Star Trek Online didn't really have a grasp on the general style of what an MMO is. And it was a little disappointing to hear it coming from the official Star Trek podcast because Star Trek Online is in fact the ongoing story for the Prime Universe timeline in an era where we do not have a television series. What, what did you guys think of, of, of the review? I was disappointed. I think, well, they actually said at the very, so this is part two of a sort of review of Star Trek gaming. And it was one of three games that they reviewed in this part two episode. And they sort of started off the review by explaining that they weren't really into that kind of game and they weren't familiar with that game style. Some of the things that they negatively reviewed were things that I would consider to be pretty part and parcel of a fairly standard PC MMO game. Things like if you pick up a a weapon, you need to go into your inventory and equip it. That's a very basic thing that it doesn't tell you in the tutorial probably, but that is there. It does. It does. Oh, it does. Okay. Oh, it absolutely does. And and that yeah, was one of the major points is was the 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 uh, that it was difficult to control and or some things were not clear. But you know, uh, Star Trek Online is is totally in line with the standard of most PC games. WASD for movement, the menus for inventories, weapons, all of those type of things. They're variations on what's a pretty common theme. And I thought that it was pretty unfair. To to being re- to review it from a from that sort of standpoint when when you're just not familiar with that type of game. I think what uh, what cons- upset me the most was that there was very little research put into reviewing a game, a seven year old game with such a massive amount of content that such little research was put into it. And so they, they were they were saying things that were kind of guesses. So, you know, it, it's not a matter of, of jur- and journalistic integrity. We're not, that's not what we're trying to, to, to point out here. But this is a game that we, as a team here on Priority One Podcast, have been passionate about. And it, it really hurt to hear this type of review coming from an official 
CBS oh, podcast. There it, is. there it is, Elijah. There it is. And this, this, that's the part that got me. That's the part that got me. Is that raw factual errors? You're and you're reviewing a a a, a, fel- a corporate asset, right? And it's just like you did. You didn't even take the time to get the nitty gritty on something that is a CBS officially licensed product just like you. Now, listen, here's the deal, because, you know, uh, Star Trek Online for me, and I have said it many, many times, and you're probably sick of hearing it, Star Trek Online is the next great Star Trek series. Because, you know, when I started playing it, there was no Star Trek on the horizon. We had the the Kelvin Timeline films, but there was no Star Trek TV show in development. And the, the story content, uh, the quality of the story content that was coming out of Star Trek Online was was exceptional, I thought. And I still think it's exceptional. It's, you know, it is and it is the ongoing Star Trek prime timeline story. And when you review a game based on a tutorial and don't get to Didn't even finish it. what I consider well, we don't know the... That they based it. We don't know that they based they it. They did. We don't yeah. know that they based yeah. it just on the tutorial. They, they did. didn't even finish the and tutorial. Nope, and the, the, you don't even get to what I consider the absolute core of Star Trek Online, which is the storytelling. That's that's disappointing. And this is the other thing too is that is they 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 talked about they really wish they could like it so they could get to the story, which they've heard great things about. But it's just you know if I'm if I'm a Star Trek person, just just somebody who likes the shows, just somebody who likes the movies, and I hear this and I kind of go, wow. That seems like an awful lot of work, and these guys didn't like it, so probably I just won't. I, yeah, never mind. That's exactly the wrong message to send to casual Star Trek fans. You know, especially if you're trying to get them farther into the the, the, the IP, you know, deeper into and have a better connection with it with an ongoing creative effort in that realm. You know, you want to say, look, if you're not used to MMOs, you're going to have to learn how to do it. Um, it, you know, you're gonna have to get used to the interface, but once you get past it, there's some great Trek stories here that you're really gonna enjoy. You know, you know, put in the effort and the time to get past it, and 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 buckle up and go. And it just seemed we've I've, I've talked a lot of times before about how having a fractioned fractionated ownership license has been a real detriment to the uh, to the Star Trek IP. I think this is another clear example where not having everybody on the same page it's just really it's it's an own goal. I mean, you're shooting it into your own, to the other team's basket, or them. It's just, it don't do that. It just seems like a terrible mistake. So, Captains, we encourage you to share our show or other Star Trek Online-related podcasts with your friends. Because Star Trek Online really is not a difficult game to master for even the most novice of MMO players. It is not difficult to pick up an MMO, you know, whether you're 13 or you're 40. Star Trek Online has a very... Now that the tutorial has been developed even further, the learning curve for Star Trek Online is not steep in any way, shape, or form. And you can very easily pick it up. More importantly, you can now play Star Trek Online on a four-year-old desktop, five-year-old desktop, seven-year-old desktop, because let's not forget that Star Trek Online was released seven years ago. So share podcasts like Priority One Podcast, Tribbles and Ecstasy, the G- the GNT show because we're the gamers that are representing the game in the in its best light for the fans that are looking to explore Star Trek lore and continue the story in the prime universe that we're not getting on television or film. So, speaking of learning about the game and introducing 
the game to new players and new Trek fans. Here we have Winters giving us this week's Star Trek Online tip. This week I'm going to talk about 50% vendors. A 50% vendor is an NPC or non-player character. You can find them on almost any ground map. Some of these NPCs you can interact with and open up different stores to purchase things like commodities, ground gear, space gear, etc. While you have the store open from any of these NPCs, you can click on the Sell tab on the top. A list of all items that are located in your inventory will appear. Be careful because the items at the top of the list are always R&D materials and components. But if you scroll down past these, you will eventually come to the items that are located in your inventory. You can then start to sell these items to the vendor for EC or energy credits. Not all NPCs, however, will give you the same amount of EC. Located on select maps, there are certain NPCs that are known as 50% vendors. Basically, a 50% vendor is an NPC or vendor that will give you 50% of the value for the item that you are selling. You can also do this with your replicator, but your replicator only gives you 40% of the value for the item that you are selling. You can find 50% vendors on maps like ESD, Kronos, Starfleet Academy, Deep Space Nine, Starbase 3 Niner Sierra, Dyson Joint Command, Delta Quadrant Command, etc. It may seem that an extra 10% isn't much, but believe me, it really does add up. So it is a good idea to get into the habit of regularly clearing out your inventory of all vendor trash and getting the highest possible amount of energy credits for it. For more information, we will leave a link in the show notes at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO311. Well, that's it for this week's Star Trek Online news. Now let's hear from Thomas Maroney and Doug Drexler. On this week's episode, we are honored to have with us two prolific artists from Star Trek Online, lead ship and UI designer and artist Thomas the Cryptic Cat Maroney, and Academy and Emmy award-winning visual effects, design and makeup artist, and of course, Star Trek master Doug Drexler. Thank hey, you. everybody. <laughs> oh, I just stepped all over you. Look at I did it again. It's perfect. Don't change a thing. Well, thank you both for joining us on this episode, really. Uh, it's uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I can't wait to uh, to uh, shoot the ship with Doug. <laughs> yes, thank you for inviting me, and it's great to actually talk to Thomas. We we're Facebook friends, but this is, I think the very first time we've actually chatted together. So that's special. Yeah. Awesome. Nice. All right. Well, we brought you on today to talk about Star Wars ships. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> April Fools. April Fools. April Fools. We thought it might be fun to help bridge film and television canon with the ongoing... Never make that joke again, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Doug was never, never came on Priority One ever again. Never. That's it. That's it. I've ruined it for all, for, for all time. <laughs> well, we thought it might be fun to, uh, to help bridge film and television canon with the ongoing story in Star Trek Online. And what better way than to do that with Star Trek ships? So first, why don't we take a quick moment to to reintroduce both of you to the community. Uh, how did you get involved with Star Trek? Uh, Thomas, why don't we start with you? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I've always been a Star Trek fan growing up. My parents uh, would watch it, and I kind of got 
fascinated with it. I grew up watching, you know, the next generation when it was on the air. And um, in fact, one of the reasons I got into uh, graphic design was because I wanted to learn how to make my own L cars. So I, you know, I, I poked at a computer until, uh, you know, had I think Corel Photo Paint was what I had at the time and trying to replicate those curves. And I made little magazines about Star Trek ships and, and the L car style and everything. And that ended up, um, kind of carrying me through college. Um, I got a degree in graphic design, went to work on website stuff for a while, and eventually, um, you know, and then Star Trek Online happened. And uh, that was something that I was um, really excited about. Hey, a persistent, like, Star Trek universe, you can go and, you know, have your own Star Trek adventure, and that's that sounds amazing. And, uh, and so uh, I got really involved in STO and um, ended up doing a lot of, uh, mock-ups of things I thought would be fun to add to the game, like little science-y scanning mini-games and things like that. Uh, so short story long, uh, Cryptic ended up liking the, that artwork that I posted and, uh, and ended up buying it and ended up uh, hiring me and uh, I got to go on to work on the UI side of things for a while doing um, the L cars for the actual Star Trek Online game. Uh, and then um, uh, did that for a few years, and then, uh, but you know, the thing about Star Trek that really, really, um, I always fell in love with was, was of course the ships, which are really their own characters. You know, the Enterprise is a main character of the show, and uh, so I always kind of coveted the job of ship artist, and uh, finally was able to uh, take some time and learn how to do 3D well enough to to contribute in that way to the game. So now I'm uh, the uh, lead. Uh, artists for the UI and uh, ship teams on STO. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Doug, how about yourself? Hey, I think this is the first time we've actually met. I mean, yeah. we're friends on Facebook. Yeah. But yeah. but I don't think we've never met face to face, but this is the first time we're actually interacting with one another. Yeah, I'm really excited to be doing this. Uh, this is definitely a, <laughs> a, a dream come true cool. for me. And Hey, when I heard you say I wanted to do those L cars, you know, uh, when I went to work on Next Generation, and I was a makeup artist at the time, and I did prosthetic makeups, rubber faces and aliens and stuff like that. And the thing that blew me away when I was on stage was, of course, the Enterprise sets, which yeah. had so much history behind them. I mean, they basically were a remod of, you know, Star Trek the Motion Picture and, you know, right. and the other feature sets. Uh, but to be on those stages, the sets are beautiful, but it was Mike Okuda's Elkar graphics that pulled everything together and Absolutely. made you believe that this was a functioning starship, that if you ripped out the wall, you'd find all kinds of glowy circuits and stuff like that, that the people who worked on the show took it so seriously that even when it came down to the graphics, you know, when Mike did a graphic, every graphic meant something. When mm. I laid out graphics on the ships, like I laid out the Defiance bridge completely from stem to stern. That was like one of the greatest th things anyone could have ever given me. Mike Okuda said he wants me to do the <laughs> layout, you know, for the Defiant. There is not a single panel on that ship that is not task specific to something that right. has to do with that station that it's at. When someone sits down at the console, they look at it and they go, whoa, and they treat it more respectfully. Mike and I have had people call us, ask for someone to come down 
to explain to them how the panels function because I look at them and they say, oh my God, someone put a lot of thought into this. I better see what the idea is, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, L cars, very powerful. You, uh, and, and I understand why it grabbed you because it grabbed me. It's, um, it's a pretty amazing, um, if I can just interject and, and say that how much of a force multiplier L cars has been to Star Trek in terms of set budgets you know the the enterprise d sets and all the the sets of that era are pretty timeless because of the the touch screen that mike came up with uh with l cars and then l cars has also become a brand it's part of star trek's brand you see those shapes and you immediately and, and what other science not even star wars can say that you know that their their computer user interfaces make you identify you know the, oh i know that this, this is a star trek show you know like that's something that we've been able to leverage really, uh, really well on STO. So, yeah. I, and I think you guys have done a good job. I think you've done a better job than the movies have, for sure. Well. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, honestly, um, uh, what, the stuff that you guys are doing uh, pay respect to what what came before, and I think that that's the most uh, important thing about Star Trek is its incredible continuity. People invest a lot of time of their lives memorizing uh how and why things work in history and stuff like that i mean there's there's an awful lot of it and when you have fans that are loving it because of that texture and mm -hmm. the complexity and uh that's that's the strength of the show and you're plugged into that the movies somehow there's this idea that if you're going to reboot something you must blow it up you right. know and that's driving a stake through the very heart that has made Star Trek so enduring. So when I see that you guys are looking at everything that came before, that makes me feel good. I, I'm, I'm distressed when I watch the movies. The movies bother me quite a bit. But I was an original, original, original fan. I mean, I was there. I watched the, the original series first run. And uh, it was... It was considered crap. <laughs> I mean, you were, yeah. there's some some halfway decent reviews, but mostly, you know, that type of stuff was kind of frowned upon uh, when I was growing up, like in the early mid '60s. Um, comic books and anything fantasy oriented was considered to be for lowbrow, or for lowbrows, you know. Um, so if you love that stuff, and I did there really wasn't that much as far as movies or television because it wasn't taken seriously and anything that got made, you know, would be like plan nine from outer space. And there's a few yeah. shining examples there, like, you know, forbidden planet and stuff like that. But the thing was that I was getting most of my science fiction and I, and I am a science fiction person. I was getting most of my science fiction uh, from reading, you know, the uh, H uh, G Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs, all, you know, Heinlein, Asimov, all of those guys um, who were, they were just beyond belief. I mean, true science fiction visionaries. And there was none of that on television. I know Rod Serling with his Twilight Zone did some really good stuff early in the early 60s. Uh, and there, there, there were some things, but it really was almost nothing going on. But when Star Trek came along, I was 12, I guess. When Star Trek came along, I knew instantly 
that whoever was doing this show read science fiction and was a science fiction fan. You see a lot of stuff being done today where it's not out of any particular obsession with science fiction. It's just to do a science fiction movie or it's just to do an action flick. Star Trek, there was a certain intellect behind it that appealed to me because I loved reading science fiction. And I became, I mean, it, it was, it was, it took a hold of me that was just absolutely unbelievable. I'd be intrigued by the science fiction concepts that you rarely ever saw on television. They were very, very, especially that first season, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't want to run amok here. The main thing is that, <laughs> because I can, believe me, I, as a kid, I was not allowed to watch television at the time Star Trek came on. I missed the first couple of episodes and I was going nuts. I saw the print ads. You know, uh, it was that poster that James Bomber did that has the Enterprise swirling around the asteroid with the jets coming, you know, trails coming from it. That was James Bomber. He's like a great American realist. If you get a minute, Google James Bomber, B-A-M-A, you'll be blown away by the art. But he did one of Star Trek's earliest. So anyway, I wasn't allowed to watch TV and I was hearing from my friends and I was going nuts. And my mother took a shower. And I snuck downstairs and turned on the TV and watched <laughs> the show. And I lost my mind. This was not, this was amazing. And I lobbied for one hour a week. And I, I got one hour, I got one hour a week. <laughs> it was, you know, the other thing is that it was like a victory. It was victor. I was victorious. It was a victory, you know, to get that one hour. So, of course, it's going to make me obsessive about it. But, um, uh, uh, no one was into Star Trek. You had to be a little bit of a kook. And um, uh, there was no internet to find anything. The th- one thing that came out, and there was some junky toys that they would just sl- slap Spock and Kirk on. <laughs> no one right. was into it at all. So it's very frustrating. But then a book came out called The Making of Star Trek by Stephen E. Whitfield. And that was like, for me, it was like Popeye down in a can of spinach i mean i read that <laughs> I, I i was 13 years old and i was reading call sheets i was reading production memos but <laughs> uh, you know uh, bob justman's memos i mean, oh, I mean wow. if you yeah. to make trick you know how funny and charming his memos were i mean eventually yeah. bob would be like an uncle for me that oh, was funny. just unbelievable well anyway the making of star trek was it was an epiphany and it made it showed me that you could actually get a job doing this that was absolutely mind-blowing and then i got this thing from um star trek enterprises which became lincoln enterprises which became roddenberry.com or whatever it was the first sheet of stuff that major i didn't know it was major was selling and i was able to purchase scripts from the show actual shooting scripts that was like steroids man yeah you know so that my life changed right there right there was star trek it changed the entire course of my life it's amazing and so what was the first star trek gig like what got you in the door well you know i was at the very first star trek convention in new york city the very first one. There were only supposed to be a few hundred people and like 2,000 people showed up. Gene Roddenberry, first time I saw the blooper reel, Roddenberry actually ran the 16 millimeter projector. (laughs) 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 That's what it was like. But the the really fabulous was that you cross-pollinated with 
professionals who were doing this kind of work. Like, for instance, Harlan Ellison always went. Isaac Asimov always went. Uh, when they were getting close to doing the movie, Jessica Von Puttkammer would be there. You would meet a lot of really interesting people because there'd always be one floor at the hotel where all the guests would stay and everyone would go up there and just hang out. So that was kind of like my first time where I was around people who were working in the business in some respect or another. My first gig, well, <laughs> there was, I was working in New York City uh, as a, for a company called Holmes Protection. They answered silent alarms. We actually were armed. Uh, but while I was on that job, I would work a night shift and I would rush home at midnight. They would show Star Trek. No, it was the Outer Limits. They would show the Outer Limits late at night. So uh, we didn't have VCRs yet. So right. if it was on, you had to rush home to see it. <laughs> I rushed home to turn on the Outer Limits and there was like a 10 second ad for the Federation Trading Post. The only Star Trek store in the universe, 53rd and 3rd. So the next day, while <laughs> I was at work, I went over there and it was like a storefront, second floor storefront. They were in there painting the walls and stuff. And I went in and met this guy, Chuck Weiss, who had one in Berkeley, California, which was a hotbed of Star Trek history, Berkeley was. And uh, we started chatting. And uh, we hit it off instantly. And he said, hey, you want a job? <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up working, managing, really, the Federation Trading Post for a couple of years. And that place... When we finally ran an ad on TV, there was like a, a line around the block for people to get oh, in for like a year. But the thing was that we were around the corner from Western Publishing that was doing the comics, which were horrible, I thought. And there was Fiona Press, which was a couple of blocks down. You have all this publishing in Manhattan, you know? And they all were looking to do something Star Trek oriented. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I remember the guys from Gold, I'm sorry, stop me anytime if I'm just gonna, you know. No, no, no way. When we were yeah. in the Federation, I remember the gold tea guys came in, the guys who did those comics. Yeah. And they very proudly, you know, and boldly, you know, huffily said who they were. <laughs> we did the Star Trek and we all burst out laughing. Oh, no. Because they were. <laughs> the, the, the diplomacy was done at that point. Uh, you know, the <laughs> thing was that we always use those comics as an example of how it can go wrong, you know? Yeah. Really, the JJ movies are, for me, they're like those comics. It's like, you know, they only had they didn't look even look at the old show they didn't like it you know jj abrams didn't like star trek i mean i'll never forget i saw him in an interview he said uh i used to hate it when they would get all philosophical and stuff <laughs> i was like no that's like the heart of the show yeah if you rip out all the philosophical stuff you just got star wars <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> We'll speak you know. later, We'll speak later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, where was I? Oh, yeah. So they came in and they said, oh, you think you're so tough? Um, uh, Here, why don't you edit this one? And so I, like, rewrote the whole thing practically. <laughs> uh, and uh, and with lots of notes for the artist who thought I was out of my mind. Because <laughs> everything he was doing looked like Buck Rogers. He mm. was an old guy and Buck Rogers was his heir. So a lot of it was looking like Buck Rogers. I would give him reference. I think he thought I was out of my freaking mind. <laughs> so, but anyway, it didn't go too bad. I, I ended up editing that one and then a two-pager, I think I wrote about from Sputnik to Warp Drive. Was and I even laid out the pages. 
anyway, oh. I couldn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't take it either because I was crazy. And I, you know, it, for me, it was all about being correct to the mm-hmm. show, which would what it was all about when I worked on the show. We wanted it to stay correct to the original series. That was really important, you know. But uh, so what happened for me was that um, I, I, like I said, there was no internet. You couldn't just go into Google and type in prosthetic makeup, you know. <laughs> how things come up and even tell you how to do it. Back then, you had to, like, hunt for books and magazines, and you had to go through the snow, trudge through the snow 20 miles to get to school. <laughs> and we liked it. No, but really, that was true. You had to uh, hunt for articles, and when you found them, they were like gold. You would yeah. tear it out and save it and even put it in plastic sometimes. So I, I was working at a um, an architectural supply house in Manhattan called Charette. And they were having a Christmas uh, Halloween party. And so I said, oh, I remembered I had an article on how to do prosthetics. It was a Planet of the Apes makeup. And it showed the whole thing from A to Z, live cast, uh, making the molds, running the foam latex, everything. And I said, I'm going to do this. And I did that. I'm sorry if I'm running off at the mouth here. <laughs> Just stop me. Um, uh, but I did this makeup. I didn't realize I could sculpt because I had always drawn, but I was able to sculpt, made the molds, I did life cast on my wife, did the whole makeup, even made a costume. And I'll never forget the first time I put that on. It was one of the most magical moments of my freaking life. Oh, wow. You know? And I knew right there, I said, this is it. I have, I'm going to do this. And so I started sculpting and making molds and doing makeups and stuff. And a friend of mine named Doug Murray, who uh, had written a lot of articles for film magazines, uh, like Cindy Fantasti and stuff like that, said, I, had, I just interviewed Dick Smith, who is like the greatest makeup artist who ever lived, and he only lives 15 miles from me. Oh, so wow. I ended <laughs> my career with Dick Smith on The Hunger, which was like this really nouveau kind of vampire flick with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve. And that was the beginning of my career. And so I did makeup for like 13 years before I... We went out to Hollywood because our lab was in Brooklyn. I'm from New York. We went out to Hollywood when we landed Dick Tracy. And that was a big job. So we basically moved for that. And when I got out here, it was like the second season on Next Generation. Oh, one thing I should not, (laughs) one thing I shouldn't skip over though, is that while we still had a lab in Brooklyn, I was going nuts because they're making Star Trek again, and I'm not on it. Next generation. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was driving me nuts. I'm going. They've even got Gene Roddenberry on it, and they've got Robert H. Justman is back. And I remember my partner, my makeup partner, John Caglione. He goes, "Well, Doug, why don't you just give Bob a call?" And I was like, "Are you crazy? I can't." Mm-hmm. And I stopped and said, "Well, why can't I? I'm a pro." Mm-hmm. Well, he he said. He motions to the phone. Go ahead, call him up. <laughs> on the phone, I dialed for information. Got the Paramount switchboard. Said I was Doug Drexler calling to speak to Robert H. Justman. They put me right through the Star Trek <laughs> production wow. office. I got, I don't know, it was probably Bob's secretary who put me right through to Bob, and I had Bob Justman on the phone like that. <laughs> did you have? Did you know what you're gonna say, or did you? Just... <laughs> 
I have a feeling it was like a reverse kind of like f fan geek out. Like, here's Bob going, oh my gosh, we have an Academy Award winner who's calling right now. And well, Doug... I haven't won the Academy Award yet. Oh, okay. That but, was. But you had already worked on Dick Tracy, right? At that point? No, no, not, not yet. I, I, oh. I'm sorry. I, I have to go back. I skipped over something. Uh -oh. uh, yes, this was before Dick Tracy. It was while we were just working out of Brooklyn and doing jobs at Dick Smith. But um, where was but I? But you had several film credits to your name. You were you were not yeah. some random guy. No, no, so, no yeah. that's why I say, yeah. Well, why can't I call Bob Justman? I'm a pro. Yeah. I'm a pro. So uh, Bob and I became friends. And like I said, no email yet. So we actually wrote letters to each other. I actually got letters from Bob Justman, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, I asked him if I could come out for a visit. And he said, sure. And I went out and I spent the whole day with Bob while they were still planning TNG. Um, and uh, I went with Bob to production meetings and meetings with ILM and stuff like that. It was just endless. I had, had met Eddie Milkus, who's a producer on the old show, and Gene was, came in you know, and we chatted, and that was just, for me, it was just absolutely mind-blowing. I wanted so, to jump in. Can, I, can yeah. I ask you a question about that that time? Was that when, um, I remember this story you've told uh, about uh, Bob showing you a model of the Enterprise D, <laughs> and he said something like, there's not a straight line on it? That's, that was part of it. We were, yeah. I was in his office, and I remember, he looks at me, and he goes, he, he goes to start taking something out, and he's got a box, like, I have something in here. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, I'm not really supposed to show this to anyone. I went, oh, okay. He says, but you are a professional, right? I said, I think so. And he goes <laughs> up the box and he takes out this hand-carved Enterprise D. It must have only been about five or six inches long. Windows were drawn on it with a pencil. And I'm, my memory is that Greg Jean made it from one of Andy's sketches. And I remember Bob holding it out and turning it. I'm looking at it for the first time. There's never even been art or anything yet. He's turning it, I'm looking at it. And I remember him with great pride saying, there's not a straight line on it. <laughs> and I knew from my experience working with producers and especially over the years, that curvy means expensive. <laughs> you know, the original series bridge, it's all, Straight, all lines. straight lines. Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's why it's easy. I'm not gonna not easy. It's always hard, but for a guy like James Cawley, or uh, uh, to build all the sets, which you could go now to tour if you haven't done that. Oh uh, yeah, I'm actually gonna do that with uh, with you guys when you're doing oh, the you gonna things. I'm gonna be there. Yeah, yeah. I got tickets. So, well, uh, it's gonna be a blast. First yeah, I can't all, wait. It's like stepping into another dimension. <laughs> you are on that, the original series, and it's lit. They even have, they, uh, Cawley had even picked up a couple of the kookaloruses, you know, the cookies that they used to break up the light on the wall. Oh, wow. A couple of originals that Jerry Holy crap. done the show. But it's, I mean, even, they've got engineering now. With the first oh, really? perspective, uh, you know, uh, engine block back there. Oh, that's which amazing. Which in person, and you're able to actually see that it's a it's a uh, a model uh, with force perspective. You go, oh my God, this is a genius. The work yeah. genius. It works so well, even in person. 
even though you know now that it's it doesn't go back that far because they didn't have all that space it still feels like it's a football field back there it's amazing that's, that's awesome see that was the other thing i got to know matt as well oh well, yeah matt at my you know my wedding reception that's <laughs> yeah. uh matt jeffries matt jeffries that, there's another one from the original who ended up being like an uncle and we were all yeah. there when they pitched on you know i watched that video you posted of uh you and uh, the Okuda is talking to him, uh, going through those photos. That's a, such an amazing oh uh, video. Oh my God, uh, that, you know, well, I still have about another hour. It just isn't all about Star Trek and stuff, but I will post it. It's just nice to sit with Matt. Yeah. You know? um, he's just the sweetest guy. He's everything you want him to be. He's very unassuming. You know, the, the, the fuss about his design for the Enterprise is beyond him. <laughs> <laughs> It's really uh, amazing to him, you know. Yeah. Um, I was going to say I want to take a quick moment uh, to reference what you guys are talking about, the this, the set design uh, in Ticonderoga, New York. Uh, there's an yeah. entire warehouse of the original series set design that you can visit. It's a museum in Ticonderoga, New York. It's complete. And uh, as a matter of fact, last year I did a tour where I took people through. And as you can – probably judge from just talking to me about this now is that you know when I first took the first group through I actually I spent a couple of days writing up a script because I don't want to forget anything right but then right. After, halfway through the first tour I went oh this is crazy I don't need this thing <laughs> and I put this <laughs> just threw it, put it aside because I'm so it's so fascinating to me all of it and relating it to new people it's just like exciting again you know well to and talk about and you helped build the bridge uh, for the Enterprise episodes in Amir Darkly and uh, the DS9 one, too, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, me and Mike Okuda and Denise are the original series nuts on the show. We all had shared the same childhood at the same time. We know where we all were at those times at the same place in front of the TV watching Star Trek first run. Um, so that original show, and then you go on to the making of Star Trek and you know, how much of an influence it's had on you. And then you've met people like, you know, uh, Stephen Hawking, who was a Star Trek fan. You know, you just like, <laughs> the the original series is, there's a lot of good Star Trek, not just the original series, but the original series is like super magical. That's what, what it all sprang from. You know, that's the original kernel seed. Um, so for us to get to do that, when first it was just rumors, and then when it came true, we were like, oh, my God, <laughs> Paramount Pictures is going to let us rebuild the Enterprise. And we have a production designer, Herman Zimmerman, who loves us like his own children and never gives us a hard time. And he totally trusts and believes in us. And me, Mike and Denise pulled out because the Internet was hardly anything at the time. It all came down to all the junk. Remember I said I was clipping articles and stuff? Mm -hmm. I had a big morgue of of articles that I had clipped over the last 30 years or so. Just Star Trek stuff, you know, when DS9 was on. And so I had blueprints. I had photos. I had all my slides from Lincoln Enterprise. I have two big loose-leaf binders of slides that I bought from Lincoln that I bought as a kid. And so... Also, we have VHS tapes. They're not DVDs yet. Uh, and we, you would have to fast forward and go back and forth to find a spot, <laughs> missing it, go back again, <laughs> you know. And we yeah. would take uh, 
very blurry frame grabs off the television. I mean, unbelievably blurry. And we were the we're the experts on the show, you know. And uh, to be correct, I mean, it really was wonderful because everyone knew it was special. Trials and tribulations. Uh, and whenever we did the original series, that the guys in the mill built everything. They loved us. We had a great relationship, and they wanted us to be happy with we're getting to build the Enterprise. They realize how unusual that is, and they want us to be happy. So it's like if they have a section of the bridge set up in the mill, I would walk down there to take a look and see how it's going, and they would have the the, the edge of the uh, console was too hard. It was it needs to be slight chamfer on it, slight bevel to catch <laughs> some light. If you watch mm -hmm. the show, and this is me explaining to the mill guys, if you watch the show, <laughs> you're going to get like a little hit of light across there, and if it isn't there, it doesn't. And they're like, "We'll do it right away. Don't worry." It'll be <laughs> that night, I go down. Uh, they, I'm standing. They've just painted the sets, the corridors, and I'm just checking it out to make sure everything is, you know, where it's supposed to be. And we were putting up signage and things like that. And there's that little. Um, <clears throat> alcove in the corridor that has a, a ladder in it that red ladder and there's a grill yeah in there i walk over to it and it's supposed to be a cutout with like a transom over the top instead it's open all the way up and i'm looking at i didn't even say anything mill guys run over what is it dougie what is it? <laughs> <laughs> it was, see it was beautiful if you don't have a good see that's half the battle having a good relationship with everyone star trek that era of star trek was just filled with people who got along you know yeah. And, yeah. and and cared about the show and everyone cared about each other and they had been together for a long time at a certain point you know i mean uh i mean i was on the show for just about 17 years i guess you know wow. so that gets to be family real family i mean the okudas actually it's funny even people from the original series are like my family now too i mean barbara luna was the captain's woman is like one of our dearest best friends and Mike Forrest who was Apollo <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm gonna see him this weekend I mean awesome. these are I mean I've known a lot of actors because I was a makeup artist you know yeah uh, and some of them are cuckoo <laughs> <laughs> and nothing like what you wanted them to be I mean you're always aware that when you meet these people that they could be totally unlike because that's what they are they're actors you know they're professional liars <laughs> but you know people like uh, you know uh, who Matt got to be great friends with Bob Justman and those people and that's really you feel this kind of thread that runs through all of life over through all the years called Star Trek that has someone pulled us all along it's really wild so let's get on uh, with talking about design. You two are both designers, both Starship designers. So I want to try to compare what you two do that might be a little bit different. So, so Doug, when you think about uh, when you're designing a ship for you know cinematic action sequences, right? A ship that's going to fly around, it's going to get some looks, it's going to be doing stuff on screen. What do you have to take into consideration when you've got a uh, an assignment that? says this is a ship that's going to see a lot of, of, of flying and action and swooping and things like that. Well, I mean, it's very rare that you just, you know, get a brief like that and come up with a design, you know. Um, the first thing I do is I start collecting everything on Earth. I collect stuff I've seen. I do sketches, save pictures from the Internet, look at fancy cars, you know, look at jet planes, look at, uh, you know, what they're predicting 
for future aerodynamics. So that when it happens in 20 years, they say Star Trek predicted it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens. Oh. That's what happens. That is what happens. I mean, you know, uh, Roddenberry had help from the Rand Corporation. And, you know, I mean, they weren't inventing anything. They were projecting forward on stuff that, you know, uh, people who were, think, you know, far thinkers, creative thinkers were predicting, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I get everything together. And the thing is that it's not up to it's not entirely up to me. You know what I mean? I'm not that I don't. They say, Doug, go do a starship. And I come out and it's like, ta-da. And they go, yay, you're a hero. <laughs> you know, it's like I got Herman Zimmerman. I got Mike Okuda. Mike and I work very closely together. We're in on everything together. I mean, every panel on the NX was carefully designed for what was behind it and stuff like that. No starship had ever done that before. So, Mike, I'm very close with. Herman is incredible. You know, Herman's going to basically let me run. But the thing is that then Herman has to go to a meeting. And he's got to sit at a meeting with like 20 people. And he's got the writers and he's got the producers and he's got the director there. And they all want something else. So now they have to hammer out an agreement that satisfies everybody. And he'll come back with notes and he'll say, well, these are the things they didn't like and these are the things that they like from the pictures used. You know, I mean, okay, now I'm kind of skipping apart here because all of that reference and all of that research that I got together before Herman went to his first meeting with the design, I would sit down with Herman and Mike and we'd lay all this stuff out and go, well, that's kind of interesting. This is interesting here. That's kind of interesting. I like that. You know, here's stuff that went before on Star Trek that we could borrow from and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I'll go and I'll do you know, a whole bunch of very, very rough sketches putting ideas together. Or I might make very rough shapes in the computer and 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 then, then we'll all look at them again and say, look, this really works here and I could spin it and look at it. And you know, I mean, up until then in the art department, when we were doing the NX, up until then, everyone had been doing drawings. You know, you get a couple of great views where the ship looks spanking spectacular. Right then you'd hand it over to the model makers and then they would make it and you keep your fingers crossed that it looks good because <laughs> you have no way of really knowing and that's the disadvantage of doing sketches like that you know uh, when like when I was doing the J I had the computer I could show it to Herman you know the thing about the J was it wasn't like the NX where they they beat you over the head and beat you over the head and you go for a couple of months the J was like Herman walks in says oh Dougie and I'm like, yes, Herman, what can I do for you? And he says, I have a project that a guy like you could do for a guy like me. And I'm like, oh, really? what that is? And I'm not kidding. This is the way it is. <clears throat> and he'll tell me about, it's the Enterprise, I think it was the K at first. They called it K. Uh, it's in the far, far, it's like 200 more years in the future or something. You know, it's far. In the, and we're, we're not going to see much of it. He says, uh, today's Tuesday. I have a meeting on Thursday. <laughs> So, no, he, so walked, he walked well, in and gave you the question I just asked you. Oh, make, uh huh. Make me a yeah. ship. Two hundred years in the yeah. future. <laughs> He's going to want to see. Some, but the thing is that if he says I want it on Thursday, it's got to be done Wednesday night. Uh-huh. And it's Tuesday now. Okay. Oh. It's about halfway through the day, and I'm like, no so problem. I, <laughs> so, so I had a question actually. You, yeah. You're talking about the. Um, uh, you know the iterative process of design, and uh, one thing that I've been collecting you know, since it came out is the Starship, uh, the the, uh, the Eagle Moss Starships collection. And there's a lot of beautiful behind-the-scenes design sequence on many of the ships. And for a lot of those, I look at them and I think, you know, you see the sketches that went into it. And I'd say maybe more than half the time, I look and I think that first sketch is actually the one I wish they'd made. 
is there any uh, of, of the models that you've designed for the show, the, the ships you've designed for the show, are there any in particular that you really wish you could just back it up to like that first presentation before you went through the more iterative process? Are there any, any favorites that you feel like you really wish you just go back to the first one? You know, the thing is that I, I really can't say that there's any like that. I mean, I end up loving what I'm doing. You know what I mean? You have to. I don't go through doing it because, it, you know, feeling angry that they didn't pick the one that, you know, I, I, I when I send stuff over, I, I have favorites, but I'm like, I'm here for you. I'm here to focus your vision. You know, I'm giving you some starting places here and I will do my best to reflect things that you're asking for, filtering it through my eye, you know. I mean, frankly, I... I really can't think of any I feel that way about. Can, know, the, can that, I also answer that question for, for my work on STO? Um, because I, I feel like in, in, a, in a case where the, an early design has been really strong, that will, it'll stand up on its own. And there have been ships I worked on where, you know, we've, we've had, we've done iterations or we've done lots of different versions and we still go with something that, that was really early in the process because that was just the one that, that was the strongest and so in in a lot of cases i think it's just you know the 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 idea is kind of you know they have the, their darwinian process of natural selection and just the you know depending on how good the people you work with are and the people <laughs> that's the hinge yeah, right there yeah yeah <laughs> but, but that the, makes all the difference i mean i've been on shows where uh we get slam 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 for incredible work and it was never good enough, never good enough, never good enough. And there was something else going on in the background, had nothing to do with us. Right. You know. Uh, but I mean, sure. Have we gone back to things from earlier designs? Absolutely. You know, it happens. You never know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but uh, no, I don't have any regrets for any of the things that, that I've designed. I really don't. I mean, I end up liking, loving them, you know. Uh, the J uh, went through almost no revisions. I sent over... Uh, three or four designs that I put together real fast. Uh, you know that image of the ship that we see in the calendars and stuff like that from time to time? Mm -hmm. That model was made like in an hour. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, because uh, there was no time to waste, I knew I had to give them at least three designs. At least three. You got to give them some stuff to hate and rip apart. You know? Yeah. And they, they picked the one that they picked the first time. I built the model, and that was that. That was that. It You know, it often, I mean, it depends on how, depends on the person that you're working for. You could be changing the most stupid thing that no one's ever going to see over and over. You know, mm. fool's errand stuff, we call it. Mm. You know. But everybody's different. It depends on who you're working with, who you're working for, what kind of a jerk it is, what kind of a wonderful person it is. <laughs> Now, Thomas, let me ask you a question. You know, you are designing ships that are designed to be interactive, right? That that a player can see in virtually every single angle. You know, and I think back on, you know, when I read about the original series and how most of the time, if I'm not mistaken, the, the angle for the Enterprise was taken from, like, a specific point. Like, you, you very rarely saw the other side of the 11-foot model. So what what do you keep in mind right like i'm sure you've read how people like doug have designed ships how do you apply that to designing for a game where a player can virtually spin around 360 
Sure. Um, and, and I should say, um, too, to give credit, you know, I, I've done I've designed a few of the ships that I built. My primary job with the ships is to execute on the concept artists. Uh, we have an amazing concept artist named Hector Ortiz, who does a lot of our designs. And so usually, you know, uh, I'll be part of the concept process with him and give him feedback as part of a group. But um, a lot of our ships have been designed by Hector um, and I just model them. Um, but but you know the things that we take in those meetings and we talk about uh, in general my philosophy uh is that you know these aren't i i try to i don't i try not to think of them as inanimate objects i try to think of them as characters and i i try to um at least on ships that i've spent more time on and, and really tried to flesh out i always try to add you know the functional and kind of surprising details based on things that have come before like the uh, an easy example is the transporter uh, I think that's what they are the little um, little like tennis fields that you see on the enterprise the hull of the enterprise D um, little details like that that uh, that just give the the surface some some uh, some detailing like oh I wonder what that's for and and uh, but, but ultimately you know you you think about the fact that somebody is going to be seeing it from every angle and you want to make sure that um, that it's it's fun to look at and that you know the person who's flying it uh, they feel kind of proud of the ship they have and, and the kind of the character that they built in their head around that that ship so um, you want you want things to have a personality beyond just you know does it have nacelles and, and a saucer you know what's unique about what's what's unique about the ship what does it bring what what it what makes it sets it apart from all the other starfleet ships that we've done so you know the you know the akira uh the 25th century iteration on the akira i did i i did um gull wing uh nacelle struts and that was something i always wanted to see in a in a starfleet ship and and you know it's it's kind of kooky it's kind of kind of weird but uh it gives that ship a bit of a, a flair and uh, typically, that's that's what I like to see is try to imbue something that's not just you know what are like proportions, all that stuff is important, but what's what's a thing that sets this apart from everything else that that kind of gives it an identity. I want to follow up with this question: How easy or impossible is it? You know, Thomas, let's say you wanted to move into cinematics and, and film. Let's say you were asked to jump on the new Star Trek Discovery boat, and they hired you. How much of a learning curve do you think it would be designing for cinematic uh well i mean i i completely do not have any of that <laughs> skill set i don't think i i you know the the models we make in sto range and the the highest we've done is about twenty eight thousand polygons where i think that i don't doug how many polygons or triangles excuse me did the uh, oh, nx1 model have i, I like don't millions remember. right but uh I'll, I'll tell you that if you went on discovery that you'd be getting drawings from guys who had their heads beat in <laughs> to arrive at it, mm -hmm. and uh, you'll build it, yeah, and then they'll start nitpicking it, and nitpicking right. it, and nitpicking <laughs> it, and nitpicking it, and nitpicking it. I'm sure you'd have a good time, but you'd also probably be pissed in some ways. It's, a, yeah. I mean, uh, I knew a lot of guys on the show. I, I know that. The pipeline was very, very jammed up. Mm. I'm sure they have a lot of work. And, yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, hopefully, it'll be a good show. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful. I think one of the major differences, and one of the reasons I like 
working in video game art is I like making something. I like the fact that that people that I'm making toys for people, right? That that it's not just something that the people can see what the models I'm making from every angle. Um, I, re- I that's a lot of fun for me. Um, I I also like the fact that I can only spend about two weeks on something and then move on to a new thing where. Uh, Doug, you said the NX01 took like months of work. Couple I imagine months. it must have. Yeah, months. yeah. So, so there's always something new to look forward to every every two or three weeks uh, on STO, and so that's yeah. I mean, that's the way it is as an illustrator uh, on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. You know, you will get stuff every week mm-hmm. that you have to do, and you can't spend more than a, a week and a half on it, and it's done. You know, John did a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. You're talking about John Eves. Uh, he's oh yeah, 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 John Eves. Enterprise E and uh... John Eves. <laughs> he's a nut. We had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I was actually going to ask. You mentioned um, the uh, NX01, and uh, Doug, you, you actually had a really uh, interesting opportunity after the series was canceled. You went in and you you rebuilt the NX01 in its refit form as an incremental step towards the more traditional Enterprise, and and I think it's fascinating because that model has had so much more life outside of canon than pretty much any outside canon ship has. There are at least uh, you know, model kits of it, uh, you know, pre-made models. Uh, could you tell a little bit about the process of you know, how, well, you, uh, how you got in your head you're going to do this and, and, and how it just so easily sold to uh, the, the Star Trek community once you did? Yeah, uh, people loved it. They loved it. Um, and, uh, and, I ha- and I suspected that they would. I, for a lot of people, it gave them a reason to like the ship. People who didn't like the ship were liking it, you know. The, the thing was that uh, when I was designing the NX, I designed it with that in mind from day one. It wasn't an idea I got later on. While I was designing the ship, I used to take a secondary hull, stick it underneath and go, okay, how does this look? Toss it so aside. So it wasn't just a crazy coincidence. Oh, you know, if you extend those uh, pylons, they could meet. <laughs> I, I had it in mind from day one. I knew what those pylons were going to do. I knew how it was going to attach. I, I, I knew from day one. Um, and uh, it was just one day that hit me years after the show when we were doing the calendar. I said, hey, wait a minute. Didn't I always want to? And I did a rough sketch. And I gave it to Pierre, who was working with us at the time. I said, would you make a secondary hull for me? And he built a secondary hull. And um, people responded amazingly well. You know, part of the reason, of course, people like things that, they love the Constitution class, you know. So they love seeing it move towards the Constitution class. But what I think blew a lot of people's minds about it that they loved was that there was a backstory beneath the skin about the ship. They had no idea and that we knew it all the time. And they loved having that revealed to them. They were like, oh my God, I'm seeing a starship evolve right before my eyes. And that was the plan that for the first time ever, because look, this is the first ship of its kind to go out there. You know that within a couple of years, they're going to have major design changes that they want to make to it. So figure after, you know, all the years it was that it was on in all that time, a secondary hull had been being built back at Earth in orbit based on information, telemetry and stuff coming back from the Enterprise, how it was handling stresses, what were the big problems. And so when the Enterprise came back, that piece was ready. 
and the Enterprise went into dock for maybe like two months, and it got its secondary hull, and it was like seeing the tadpole, you know, <laughs> get its legs, you know, and I think that really appealed. That people love the idea. One of the things people have loved about the shows that we did was discovering all the backstory and in our heads how we thought everything worked. People love that. People love reading Mike Okuda's tech stuff, right? Don't you yeah. love it? Yeah. Yeah. You love knowing that that kind of thought, and that's why we attracted astronauts, physicists, guys from JPL used to come visit all the time because they could see that it had, it had been thought about. You know. Um, it's one of the things I think the the NX01 really, you know, when you really especially look at the the rear of the saucer and the the cargo bays and doors and stuff back there, it feels like it feels like a place that people work, you know, and, and that's I think. Uh, it's funny something. you should say that because yeah. um, originally my idea was that, of course, I'd never go for this in the writers' room, but originally my idea was that after every three or four jumps into warp, you had to hold the ship. And and Trip had to spend like 72 hours cleaning up the engines and getting them ready to go again. And that that entire back section of the saucer at that point, before they got the secondary hull, was an engineering staging area that was designed just to work on those engines. And that the NX had a couple of arms just like the International Space Station, only much better, of course, mm-hmm. to work on those things. Uh, so when you say that it looked like a place people work, it was designed in mind that it had to be worked on all the time. That would have been uh, how, that, how I wish they had, had done more with that because it's it's a really cool age of sale uh, allegory, right? The just the, how how much time you have to spend keeping your your ship yeah. just underway and yeah. and how much maintenance it requires, and, and, yeah. you know, and that would have fit Full-time really job. well with the, the theme of the show. I, I think it would have worked great. I think the trip would be exhausted all the time. <laughs> you know, I think, yeah. that, but they never did that. You know, I mean, we had made suggestions before, and sometimes they made, and I'm not knocking them because it's a hard, hard job. But uh, if they have a scene where two guys are supposed to trudge all the way across the hull to get to a mine, right? You remember that mine? Yeah, they yeah. Had, they trudged. There's a shot of them trudging like halfway across the hull. I wrote notes saying that this makes them look dumb. <laughs> it's like they went out there without any idea what the, how they were going to handle an emergency. I go, first of all, there are airlocks all over the ship, all over the ship. There's an airlock within 50 feet of where the mine is. <laughs> and, and I said, and beside that, the ship was designed with the idea in mind that there were cars, like on skyscrapers, right. that could run along the tracks. And you could ride those things to anywhere on the ship and bring your equipment. You know, it's like a crew cab almost, you know. But they were like, no, 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 it's it's more dangerous this way. You <laughs> yeah. know, but the thing is that a lot of the fans are real thinkers and they think about how the ship operates and stuff. And they go, that's that's ridiculous. Right. You know. I always, for the most I always... part, the shows had a good score, though. They, they had a good score for, for listening. Yeah. yeah. I always figure that, that people... <laughs> I don't know. My own personal preference is I'd rather see the world fleshed out with things like that than some than just have like heightened artificial drama. You know, like show me characters that are clever and that are prepared and smart, and it's easier yep. for me to root for them than yep. than just somebody who kind of falls into a situation that is 
you know a professional astronaut would never think of getting themselves into in the first place so yeah no you believe that the people the people were professionals they knew their job you know yeah i got a lot of as a kid growing up and and even beyond even today i'll still think about if i was a starfleet officer what's the right thing here yeah you know i have to admit <laughs> don't we all we all yeah. in our daily lives wonder what we would do as a starfleet and, officer Doug, you mentioned the the uh, tech manual that you know stuff that Akuda did. I've I've done a few of those for well two. Um, I, I want to do more. They they take a long time, but I've done a, a couple of those for Star Trek Online, and it's uh, it's a lot of fun to to really dig deep into you know. And since the pace we have on STO is really fast, so we'll have to build out a ship in a few weeks. And uh, but but usually while I'm while I'm modeling and while I'm texturing it, I'm, I'm still trying to think like, okay, there, there should be a hatch here to break up the space, but what does that hatch do, right? And so I'll tuck that, I'll think about it, and I'll come up with a solution, and I'll tuck that in the back of my head. And, and for a few a few ships, I've gotten to, to write kind of a magazine article, finally just blasting all that knowledge out into the, the community, and the fans love it, because they love having that texture like you're talking about of, mm -hmm. Uh, and, it just and, helps make it more real. Yeah, you know, it's more real when they hear that. Um, I'm sorry, I was gonna. I, I wanted to interject one quick second, actually, Thomas. When you mm -hmm. say you're, you know you're reading through the tech manuals and things like things like that, and you're bringing to life something like the NX01 refit, which just recently made it into the game, you know, what's your what is your research like? You know, you're you're now making an interactive model of this, where you know what are you referencing? What are you looking at? How do you bring it to life? Well, so the NX01 uh, was was kind of challenging since it wasn't a, you know, the the, the easiest thing to find is obviously reference for 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 quote, quote unquote canon stuff. So um, on the face of it, the NX01 refit was a little more challenging. Except that since I'm friends with Doug on Facebook, he has all these wonderful galleries and albums on his Facebook of of all these reference photos for the NX. He had one for the Defiant. Uh, that I've used. Um, so Doug's uh, Doug's Facebook is a huge, <laughs> huge <laughs> reference for me and my job. I can't I can't thank you enough, Doug, for oh I'm for great. all of I'm, that. I'm glad to hear that you're getting use out of it. Honestly, yeah, no, it's for it's me. Great. It's like helping helping uh, further, you know, that universe. Mm -hmm. So I like it. Yeah, and and so I, I looked really closely. I read everything that Doug had to say about the ship. I had the I have the Eagle Moss model, and they had. Um, <laughs> images in there of that and you know and so i paid special attention to uh all the areas that was different from the you know the canon nx so when i um i kind of fibbed a bit when i was making it because uh, i was like oh this will be great we can we can quote unquote save time since we already have an, an nx01 model in the game we should do the the nx refit and then not of course telling everybody that i fully intended to completely redo the <laughs> nx01 model that we had so it was much more accurate <laughs> so it ended up it ended up being going from oh i could probably do this in eight days to taking like 18 days or something <laughs> like that <laughs> but it was it was worth it because uh you know i you know the the nx01 is a great ship and i and since we were building the the refit anyway it, there there are a lot of things that that were the same. So I actually started by building the original NX, and then and then copying that off and making the changes. But you know, I I paid uh, paid special attention to the deflector and the shuttle bay, and and of course the engineering hull. You know, is a whole new piece. But but I wanted to give people the option to um, uh, swap out. Uh, you know, the nacelles are different. They have the the outer the outside of the nacelle is 
kind of closed, capped off. Um, and what's neat about Star Trek Online is that you can mix and match all these pieces. So the um, the the refit has the deflector from the Columbia, I think the kind of square deflector dish, uh, and so that's an option. Uh, so you can use that deflector independent of the actual main uh, engineering section. So if you want your your NX to look like the Columbia instead of Enterprise, you know that's the kind of thing you can do in SDO. Um, and we also, you know, I also made a different version of the material because I noted that Doug had said uh, that the he wanted the NX originally to be more more like the Constitution, where it was more it was brighter. Brighter. Um, yeah, and uh, and so and the the nacelles to be more uh, orange. Um, yep. Uh, what was the term you used for that? That uh, they didn't want anything that was too. It wasn't flashy, but it was a similar. Um, what, you, similar you term. The, the effect in the nacelle, or. Uh, yeah, you said. I don't know. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I remember. I almost want to say it was like bronzy or something like. Like the producers were worried that if it were too bright, it would be too distracting and showy or something. Well, yeah, that you know, I found that uh, Rick Berman, which you know, I think, and he did a lot of good for Star Trek. There's no doubt. Um, he tend to want to push things in the background. You know, as time went on, colorful uniforms went away. Uh, things that uh, might be important to someone else got kind of pushed in the background, like wallpaper. And he he may have pushed for a darker ship. I know the ship as we turned over to them was much brighter um it ended up getting really dark like a gunmetal almost which and yeah. it was also lit extremely dark and i wasn't a big fan of that i thought the ship that you know if you have a dramatic point to make by putting it in an area of space where it's you know a one point light source that's very dark you know then you know, you could create a mood by doing that. But I thought that when you're presenting the Enterprise as the gallant ship that it is, that it'd be bright and beautiful and uh, and out there, you know? So I saw that the NX refit is being pushed more towards the... In any way you could think of pushing it towards the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Surfacing, the fronts of the nacelles. I never liked the red nacelles, to tell you the truth. I mean, they were okay on the D, but I really did not like that swirly stuff they had in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I uh, to kind of wrap up that question though, I just, I just, uh, just did my research and made sure that I knew what uh, Doug's intent was. Now, it's, it's kind of a shame since we're working under NDAs and and we have such a fast turnaround that it's a little hard for me to go directly. Uh, and I, I also don't want to, you know, Doug's a busy guy. I don't, don't really feel comfortable bugging him about stuff like this while I'm working on it because usually it's like, well, I need to know. I need to know, like, in the next hour, you know, what I'm doing. So uh, I can't expect people to turn around that far. But I, I, I do. And I, You know, I much prefer to see you go out and, and do your research and do what you think and, and what you feel needs to be done. That's kind of more interesting for me, honestly. Yeah, I trust you, I guess. I'm <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Why don't we talk? take a community question real quick? Uh, we have one from Mustrum Ridiculi. Thomas, any canon ship that you personally want to work on and haven't had the chance yet yeah i well i mean there you know there's there are lots i'd love to do the for for kind of an underdog obscure ship i'd love to do the new orleans from the best of both worlds i always thought that was a fun little ship with a little pod you know it's like a mini galaxy class with longer nacelles and has some pods on it i know people have been clamoring for a uh a remaster of the uh 
the motion picture era Enterprise, and so I'd love to do that someday. Um, that's a tall order, though. That's such a beautiful ship. I think that you know that that would be a challenge to get it right, but it would uh, hopefully look great. I I have to say I wanted to make this point with Doug while he was here that you know I I get to make a lot of brand new Star Trek designs, which is a lot of fun. But I also really value the time I spend recreating canon ships because. Um, and I'll go out of my way on my own spare time to kind of redo a lot of our cannon ship models to make them uh, more detailed and, and accurate because I, I feel like uh, feel like one of the old Renaissance painters, you know, copying the masters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I totally understand completely, you know, because because um, I've been involved where I've had to take original designs, uh, and uh, you kind of take the cr- the journey with them when you're recreating something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that's really kind of exciting, you know. Um, it's a great, wonderful feeling, you know. I love retracing, uh, you know, Matt Jeffries' steps and then getting to know Matt and then talk about ideas and, you know, like for instance, I'll never forget to go off the deep end here. Um, when I was a kid in New York in '64, '65, there was a gigantic World's Fair, um, and there aren't that many of them anymore. And back then. America was like really booming. There was the comp- corporations had lots of money, and they did this ch- enormous fair. You know the Unisphere that we see in Men in Black that the flying saucer crashes through the globe. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. That's the Unisphere from the 1964 World's Fair, and those two flying saucers where one takes off. Yeah. It's the New York State Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I, my dad used to. I was 14, and my dad used to drop me off. No, I was 11. I was 11. My dad used to drop me off at the main gate because he had a TV repair store nearby, and he'd give me a little bit of money, and I'd spend the whole day at the fair by myself. And the thing about the fair that you have to understand for you guys is that it was like sci-fi heaven. Hmm. It was so science fiction influenced because the space program had just been gearing up, and it was the Gemini Seven, and I mean the, I mean the. Uh, 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 Mercury 7 guys and Apollo you know I mean it was very so there was a lot of futuristic stuff I mean you could ride the GM Futurama and so, anyway I I studied that fair and I collected lots of pictures from it and I'm an expert on it and while I was a kid I was looking at it and I'm going I see a lot of Star Trek design similarities at 11 years old mm-hmm. I was doing this and um, I mean like the if you if you type in the New York State Pavilion 64 World's Fair, you'll see it. It's Starbase 11. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to tell Mike Okuda, I said, I'm telling you, Mike. <laughs> I'm telling you that the designed ground zero is a 1964 New York World's Fair. Mm-hmm. And he'd look at me, yeah, Doug, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm obsessed. And then one night we went out with Matt for dinner. And mm-hmm. I said to him, say, Matt, so... Did you ever get to the 64 World's Fair? And he said, oh, my God. He says, we went and we walked our little feet off. And when I got back, there was a message from a guy named Roddenberry. And oh, I kicked wow. him under the table. <laughs> 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 but but uh, it, there's a lot of inspiration to be had with that kind of Googie-style architecture that was very big in the uh, early 60s. It's very much Star Trek. Yeah. You know, it's something to keep in mind with ship designs, you know. Get a little googie in there, you know, tastefully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't, don't overdo it. it. Right. Yeah. Don't overdo it, but use it. You know, yeah. I mean, it is its era. 
You know, it is not from the era of of ships with tank parts on them. Yeah. Or Apple stores. And that's one thing that yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or beer. I think... beer. Uh, uh, breweries. Beer breweries, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh... Oh, I was pissed. I was oh, so man. pissed. Oh, you're not the I... only one, brother. You're not the well, only one. <laughs> you are preaching to the choir on that one, man. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing Battlestar Galactica Blood and Chrome. Mm. Oh, yeah. The movie came out. And I was so pissed at engineering. It was such an insult that I was in the middle of designing the new hangar bay. And I wanted to have like three levels with ships, with, with Vipers coming down and rolling out and stuff happening everywhere. And that was going to be my f- you to J.J. Abrams. Battlestar Galactica, you know, that, that yeah. kind of uh, loose camera in space. Yeah. Look, that oh, was yeah. definitely ESG. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So I was like my screw you. You know, we had a sign in the Battlestar Galactica visual effects department that had the Battlestar logo, and it said, uh, days since brewery. (laughs) 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 You know, without a brewery or something like that, you know. One of the the things that, like, um, I I really appreciate uh, about working on a Star Trek game, uh, just as an artist, um, even if I weren't such a huge Star Trek fan, I... I like that we have we have to kind of stick to this style because it gives everything we do an identity that I don't think it would have otherwise. If you look at a lot of science fiction uh, games that are out there now, they all kind of borrow from you know Sid Mead, who, who's amazing and he was a genius. But it, you know a lot of these games just kind of end up bleeding together, looking the same, and you don't yep. have you know you don't you don't know is this ship from game a or game b or you know what is what's going on and star trek has that really locked down you know you can see that like oh that's a that's a starfleet ship that's a right down to the graphics Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that's uh that's one of my favorite things on the ships on the new ships that i make the original ships that i make is i i I apply liberally all the the decals on the the ship because i really feel that it gives it scale it gives it personality and it makes Absolutely. It makes, yeah, and it makes it feel like, again, it's something. This is a, a vehicle with purpose, right? Yes, and, very important, and a lot of people don't get that. You know, um, if you look at the movies, I cannot make heads nor tails of that bridge. I can't tell what a stations. You know that all of the uh, bridges and op centers and stuff, which were mostly handled. You know, I worked w- with Mike Okuda for years, but Mike was a scenic art supervisor. And he really did an incredible job and with Denise, especially once they were able to use monitors and have animated displays, that every display had a purpose. And it was supposed to be, if you looked at it, you would figure out within a minute what it did. Not to say that it was like play school for kids, but just that, you know, you could look at something and know what... Uh, uh, you know, an altimeter looks like and stuff like that. You'd figure it out, you know. Star Trek stuff was always carefully, Mike carefully considered everything on those things. We had the squint test in the art department. We'd put up a graphic. If you squinted and looked at it and it turned to mush, it was a failure. It -hmm. had to have hot spots and areas of activity. And that Mm -hmm. when they had the animated stuff, they would carefully choose what they wanted. They had 
you know, specific alert playback. You know, if if the ship had a temperature, if it had a, didn't feel good, huh. if it was under attack, <laughs> if it was you, even if you didn't know why, if you watched the show long enough, subliminally, the consoles would be giving you this information. When I watch JJ's bridge, I can't. I don't have no. I I have no idea what's going on. And to me, that's failure for Star Trek. There's absolutely no reason for the communications officer to need a giant lever. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a it's a truck gear shift. What does she need a truck gear shift? <laughs> I, I, I never understood this. Uh, in fairness, Sulu probably should not have had one in the first Star Trek movie either. But I get the throttle for a helmsman. I get that. The thing is that I understand what they were trying to do, you know. Uh, but uh, in 19... It was the late 70s? Was it the late 70s, the first movie? Yeah. You know, I could forgive yeah. a lot of stuff like that. You know, a lot of their graphics are pretty primitive looking too, you know. Um, uh, Lee Cole, who did them, who was a friend who I knew, um, uh, it, they were flying by the seat of their pants. You know, they had, we actually had in the art department projectors that were, had loops in them that played the graphics that they projected on the backs of the screens for the bridge. And it was noisy. Oh, oh, and on, on the Enterprise, the A, the refit? The original motion picture. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, that's how they did that. Because I always wondered how they had it flat screens in the eighties. So they did. So, Doug, uh, I heard that that was that was how they. Uh, I heard that's how they did the view screens on the pilot, the cage bridge as well. Is that is that true? Like the the not view but on the bridge, um, the screens above all the stations were those also uh, projectors? Because I heard a, a story about they they stopped doing that because they didn't want to pay a union guy yeah, to stand it's next too to much the trouble. You know, I mean, you'd have to think about it every week. It's one more thing to go wrong. You know, I could see right, why right. hate that, you know. Um, they did manage to use the main view screen in a couple of episodes. The, I mean, Spock's brain <coughs> uh, had the view screen operating. Uh, there's a shot in, oh, gee, which one do they walk in front of the, there is one shot where they walk in front of the screen. You know, they rarely used it. It was a lot of trouble for them to use. So they ended up not we never did either. Although when we did on Enterprise, we did the Mirror Darkly episode. We had we built the bridge. Unlike Trials and Tribulations, we built like 90% of the bridge. It only had one section, little section that was missing, and we actually had a rear projection for the main viewing screen. And you mm. could sit in the captain's chair and watch the stars sliding. Oh, that's by. awesome. Do they? Nice. I I guess I. I I don't know if I should be spoiled on the uh, at the Ticonderoga sets. Do they do that, or is it just a, a black screen, or what does the view screen look like uh, at, at the Ticonderoga sets? Oh, uh, it looks pretty much what it looked like when it was off. You know, okay, just like a neutral. They didn't have anything, but they can project on it. It's like it looks like projection material. Okay. You know? um, oh yeah, you'll go nuts when you go there. I'll tell you one other really amazing experience I had. It was on one of the Star Trek movies. And, you know, you get these directors who go crazy. And they ask for all kinds of nutty stuff that won't play, won't make any difference at all. You know, when we did Deep Space Nine, don't let me forget uh, to tell you about the bridge. But when we were doing Deep Space Nine, originally the runabouts were made with hydraulics. Somebody talked them into putting that runabout on, set on hydraulics. <laughs> and it didn't look any better, maybe not as good as them shaking around on their own. Oh wow! Okay. And it shook <laughs> the set to pieces. Oh, I uh, bet. 
<laughs> things were nails were pulling out. I mean, it was a wreck. So actually, you you mentioned the runabout, Doug. I had a I had a question actually about the runabout. That okay, um, now hold the, the runabout model. story. Let me just make this really fast. Uh, are you holding it? Yeah. So I'll forget, and I know you want to hear this. We were doing one of the movies. It was the Enterprise B bridge. I don't remember the name of the director. Maybe it was Insurrection. I don't know. Um, he wanted the entire freaking bridge on hydraulics. <laughs> and, and we're looking at each other like, what the hell? Well, anyway, they did it. And me and Mike went down and were standing on the f- bridge of the Enterprise E. And all of a sudden, the whole the ship lurches forward. <laughs> Let me tell you. The feeling was unbelievable. I'm sure it didn't make any difference on screen, but it blew our minds. Okay, back to the runabout. <laughs> well, no, I was wondering, because the runabouts, clearly there's a back section to the runabout that, that yeah. you can see it has windows. And bizarrely, the only time we ever saw that set yeah, was yeah. in a Next Generation episode, and it was never used on DS9. No, we never. they never sent them back there. I mean, I used all that reference when I designed the runabout for... I mean, Rick Sternbach designed the runabout, but I fleshed it out for the DS9 tech manual. And it had cargo containers in the center, and there was a corridor that ran down the spine. So each container could be a mission-specific a module. You know, it could be a DNA lab. And pack a DNA lab, and you'd pop that on there. And then you could walk down the corridor, go in the door, and there'd be the DNA lab in there. And then behind it would be, it's like it's little 10 forward, where you'd all sit and, you know, chit-chat. But yeah, it was never used on uh, DS9. I'm sorry it wasn't. Um, you it know, just we seems built... weird that they went to the effort of building the set once, but they didn't recognize like you know it, it would give them more flexibility. I you know I don't know I don't know they I don't know what their reasoning was. That uh, DS9 tech manual, by the way. Let me just thank you for that because it's one of the it's you know uh, it's amazing. The illustrations in it are fantastic and oh thanks. Yeah, it's it's one of my I, one of my favorites. You know. Um, I look at it now, of course, Star Trek was my day job at the time, and and my bosses were the best in the universe, you know, so if I had my work done for the show, I could spend the time working on the tech manual or whatever, so I I look at it now, I flip through it now, and I go, holy Jesus Christ, where did I do all this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, uh, my biggest disappointment was that there was an additional section with ships in the back that I guess Margaret Clark the editor decided to resize them and in mm. illustrator if you there's a little checkbox if you don't tell it to scale oh, the, the line the weights strokes yeah yeah that's she yeah, I know screwed what you're talking it up about. And all the line yeah. weights are wrong and i get back to that oh, section i'm no. like oh god what a shame how did that yeah. how did you not notice this but you know but uh, yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> tech manual. you know um one of my favorite things that was ever written about me was written by Ira Bear, who I just saw yesterday. They're doing this Deep Space Nine um, documentary. And yeah, I'm uh, excited about that. Yeah, should be very interesting. Um, but um, uh, in the introduction, he says, <laughs> talking about me, he says, the key to Doug Drexler are his eyes. Look closely and you'll discover a Merlin the Magician like Lunas. <laughs> <laughs> and that you'll, and you're sure that Doug knows secrets to the universe nobody else knows besides he's a big sinatra fan so you know he has got taste <laughs> actually have it memorized <laughs> that's awesome. i love that I, I roared when i read it yeah. i have a klingon so, named after me too oh yeah oh yeah drex right drex yes yeah. was he was from the house of martok wasn't he yeah. 
<laughs> well, gentlemen, I want to uh, thank you again for stopping by. You know, but before we go, I want to kind of leave the mic open a moment. Thomas, are there any last pieces of information that you could ask Doug to, to apply to Star Trek Online? I bet you're like, I have like 400. I can keep talking <laughs> for six hours. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I would just love to 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 keep shooting the uh, there's uh there, there's not one question right there's a you just kind of want to sit at the foot of the the uh, the guru and and absorb <laughs> absorb his knowledge um uh a happy birthday by the way doug thank uh, you it was yesterday right. <laughs> happy, oh yeah that's right happy belated birthday and you know what secrets to the universe how about secrets to your uh training your physical <laughs> training because holy heaven you know it's just been a lifelong thing with me you know, um, I, I guess when I was in my early twenties, I started putting on weight, you know, and I'm like, what the hell is, and I'm very, I'm an, I could be analytical. And I just started reading everything. And also I was doing a lot of drawing and sculpting of the, uh, to learn the muscle anatomy, muscles anatomy. And I, you know, had a lot of the, uh, you know, men's fitness magazines with Arnold was the star at the time, you know, and Franco Colombo and those guys and did a lot of drawing of that. And I learned while doing that. And I just, for me, it's like, I go real early in the morning uh, and it's my, you know, where I meditate and, and and I screw my head back on. I can't think of anything else while I'm doing that. You know, so it's good for you if you're under a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a, become a, a hobby of mine, you know, uh, what to eat and when, what not to eat and when to eat, and, you know. Uh, and it's actually pretty simple, but, uh, it's been, you know, people think it's uh, for your body, but it really is for your head, too. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I know not to pick a bar fight with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what... <laughs> well, Doug, what about you to Thomas? Any any words of wisdom for a, a ship designer as they're... You know what? All I can tell you is that uh, I like what you're doing much better than what they're doing in the movies. And well, thank even you. And serious. <laughs> and... Uh, because the respect shows and that appeals to Trek fans. They feel protective of Star Trek and they may not always agree with us personally about something we might do. I mean, I've been told off a few times. <laughs> <laughs> but they feel very protective of the show and the people who work on it. You know? and they, Absolutely. And they, and they very, they love Star Trek like I met, talked about before, that amazing continuity. You know, And you and guys show respect for that and that's why they've responded so positively to you yeah whereas a lot of them are very upset at the jj films you know Um, so that's what i say and that and coming from me that means a lot believe me no i i I really appreciate you saying that and that's something i take as as somebody who works on the ships uh which are you know a very popular part of star trek i i take that very very seriously Um, and hopefully it shows in my work thank you yes it does Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us on this episode of Priority One Podcast. It really has been an honor to just learn so much history and, and learn you know what it takes to to, to not just be a, an artist but a Star Trek fan. Really, you know, um, it's, it's inspirational. Really, so so thank you so very much for all your your years of work. And, and Thomas, we look forward to even more ships that you design and, and render and, and allow us to play in Star Trek Online. Yep. Yeah, it's it, it's a privilege for sure. Thanks again to Doug Drexler and Thomas Maroney for being on the show this week. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. 
Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Episode 310's community question was, what makes Star Trek Online fun for you? One of our patrons via Patreon, David S., wrote in saying three things. Being immersed in the Star Trek multiverse, playing missions with friends, and relaxing on Risa during the summer event. And also from Patreon, Joshua Truax says... Continuing the adventures in the Star Trek universe beyond the TNG time frame and contributing to them as a prolific Foundry Mission author. From Priority One Podcast, Marques says, What I love about STO is the whole MMO element of the MMORPG. As a fleet community leader, I interact daily with people from all over the world, from the US and Canada to Europe, all the way to Asia and Australia, joining up to bash the Borg and Hive, bash each other in a PvP, play episodes together or go seriously overboard playing Space Barbie. From the Star Trek Online forums, Tyler Maxwell wrote, I suppose ultimately it's doing what makes me feel like I'm having adventures like those in the TV shows and movies. Even the Kelvin Timeline adventures are welcome. If it makes you smile like a little kid on the inside, you're probably having fun. From Facebook, Joey Brooks Rose wrote to us, It is an interactive media that allows me to escape and partake in the Trek universe. STO is my refuge from the rough-and-tumble real world, and time to relax and let Trek take my cares away. From Twitter, at STO underscore Morishita says, Space Barbie and Demo Record. Happy smiley face. And for anybody who is listening and wants to see some absolutely gorgeous screenshot artwork i would definitely go and have a look at her twitter page because there's some beautiful artwork on there not just star trek online but other games as well and she sent us like a page of questions for thomas and doug and they just those two guys just like talked we didn't get to yeah so get to our questions actually that yeah that's a really good point tony you know we want to thank everybody who submitted community questions uh i had a page page of them you know like two pages of them we had two pages of questions guiding them and, you know, to, to, to figuring that we might need them, right? Figuring that we might need them. And uh, we didn't because Doug, you know, Doug was just so open and willing to share his stories. And unfortunately, you know, time ran out and we, we couldn't get to, to too many of your community questions. So we really apologize for that. But hopefully you enjoyed the interview with Doug Drexler and Thomas Maroney. I know we did. I mean, it was just, it was, you, you come to, sometimes... Sometimes with Star Trek masters like that, it's you, you know that they've told the stories time and again. And sometimes it gets to where you hear that when they're telling it. They, they express that a little bit, but not Doug. Doug was excited. Doug was infectious. Doug loved to share his experience on Star Trek, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise. I mean, he loved sharing those stories, and so it, there was no way we were going to stop him. There was no. So, way. Sometimes they perk up when you ask them, "What are you doing now?" And they say, "Well, I'm doing this interesting thing that has nothing to do with Star Trek." And they get very animated and talk. And then you say, "You know," then we go back and talk about the Star Trek days. And they kind—I mean, they they still like it, but they kind of fold up a little bit. You can kind of you can hear it, you can see it. But D- Doug, totally the opposite. I mean, he just. Uh, we're gonna, and I'm, I'm trying to get him on the other show. You know, that other show we do uh, to talk about his time on Battlestar Galactica. Uh, so we're going to get him. Uh, if, if, you, if you like that interview with him and you are a Battlestar Galactica fan, well, let's tune into Card Frequency here in the next few weeks and get another dose. From PriorityOnePodcast.com, Duncan Idaho 11 wrote, 
The occasional dance-off, snowball fight. Oh, <laughs> yes. No, I do love it. Cheeky snowball fight. Well, and, like, the times that we've done, like, live streams and, you know, stupid stuff, and we're just either hanging out in the Winter Wonderland or hanging out in Club 47 and everybody's doing... I mean, Cookie always turns up with the nerve tonic, yeah. right? And, or Winters has um, a Dabo game. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just really good fun just to hanging out and playing around and chatting and, Yeah. And finally, from Twitter, Nandos at Mastonando says, You can pilot your own Star Trek starships with friends, and you can also fire at enemies. What else do you want? It's almost—it's apropos that we asked this question, given our conversation in Star Trek Online regarding the Engaged podcast review, because, you know, there are players of Star Trek Online who, who experience the story— like I mentioned earlier, in this game. And not only that, but but if you we go back and we 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 mentioned Marques's feedback about being a, a fleet leader, and you don't even have to be a fleet leader, to engage with people all around the world. That was something that was sorely missed in that review. Is that as an MMO, you are engaging with Star Trek fans globally. And that is a huge, huge part of Star Trek Online. I mean it's online, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, I, I think it's serendipitous that we ended up asking this question, even skipped a week to be able to go over this feedback and have that engaged podcast be released for us to kind of use this as, as a springboard to a conversation of, of how good Star Trek Online actually is for the overall lore of Star Trek. Well, that wraps up episode 311 of Priority One Podcast. But before we go, we'd like to send a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Navy Boat Slew, David S., Lee Malian, and Admiral. Here's a reminder of our community question for the week. Are you ready to welcome back Star Trek fan films? Which fan films have been produced since the guidelines that have really piqued your interest? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. So leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast, or tweet us at Priority One Pod. Captains, what we could really use is for you to review us on iTunes. Just do a search for us, Priority One Podcast, and you'll find us there. Go ahead and rate us and leave us a review. Don't miss a thing from the world of Star Trek. Catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Thursday nights at around 11pm Eastern. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, you can join us in Star Trek Online in the Priority One Armada. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up today. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. Covering the world of space sims, including Star Citizen, Elite Dangerous, Descent Underground, and many more. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. A big thanks to our special guests this week, Doug Drexler and Thomas Maroney. Thanks to our audio team led by Michael McDonald, with assistance from Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, and with support from Midnight Shadow 7 of Sweet Media. Don't forget, Captains, if you'd like to join the Priority One podcast team... 
shoot us an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to associate producer, Navy Boat Slew. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Tony. And as always, in the recording booth is our audio engineer, Winters. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing that anymore, are we? We just no, did. No, we're not doing that. Apparently we, we just no, did. We were going just, to. Just go with it. <laughs> Captains, you know we love hearing from you. So let's keep the conversation going. By reaching out to us via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. You can also catch us on Twitter at Priority One Pod. You can send us an email to... <laughs> it wasn't me. I noticed it, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me either. I know, I know, I know. But I started laughing because I was like... <laughs> you can even... Se- you, uh, where did I mess up? Uh, you can, you can, right? Captains. You can... S- <laughs> yeah, you wish. <laughs> Okay, maybe it's not a movie per se, and that's not right either. I mean, per se. Not right either, but I mean, phonetically, let's get that fixed, too. How do you say per se? Is it S-E. It's Latin. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the thing by itself, is what it means. So, <clears throat> Ay, Dios mío, me será posible. Mira, cuando ustedes prenden sí, otro lengua. Sí, muchos tacos grandes. Después, después, me puede a, a decir a mí cómo, grandes, cómo se habla inglés. Muchos tacos grandes, muchos gorgonzalos. ¿Dónde está la biblioteca? Yo quiero vez, una cerveza. Por favor. Qué comedia, coño. Cuando ustedes hablan español, cuando prenden otra, otra lengua, ahora me puede decir algo de mi inglés. He sounds very angry. We should probably leave him alone. He's really angry. I know. <laughs> And most recently, Chris Obi tweeted a response about being called the Kling... The, the Kling of Klingons. <laughs> You're the Kling of wishful thinking. I'll get over you. You. I know I will. I'll pretend my ship's not having a warp core breach. Zip it. <laughs> hey, and that's my next recently, parody. See, ye of little faith. You know. Look, you know what bothers me is that you don't give Tony crap for... Doing his thing with the words. With the yeah, words. because <laughs> it's because she likes to be better than you. <laughs> yeah, that's not true. Oh, right to the heart. <laughs> right, right here, right here, right here. <sighs> hey, you know that big bucket of scratchers you have? Use it on yourself, oh, buddy. <laughs> here we go. Mm.
Just pour it. Just ice bucket challenge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with those little tiny, with those little tiny cubes, the ice cubes. Remember the, the ones that you no, like, Elijah? The little tiny ice cubes. You know, the little, little ones. Anyway. Okay. Let's. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Good. Well, I was gonna say. Let's. I wanted, I wanted to use that as a. Uh, as a jumping off point to talk to you guys about your design practices, you know, Canon being such a, a, an important part of it, but you guys are also tasked with designing new things, right? You know, give us something we haven't seen before. So Doug, let's start with you. When, when someone hands you a project and says, uh, in a Star Trek type environment and says, give me something new. How do you start with that? Well, I mean, I need to know more than that. <laughs> well, okay. you know, it's not like I'm going to meet the guy in the hall and you're going to say, Doug, give us something new. You know, let's see the script. Let's find out what's going on. Who are these guys? Can I draw any parallels from anything? Is there anything in nature that I could pull from? I'll start. I mean, a few, I mean, when we were doing let the me, show. Let me ask the question again for a couple reasons. Number one, <laughs> question was too vague. Number two, my well, cat was going nuts. Yeah. In the back. So, 